It's been a while since we've spoken to Malcolm. Lots happened since we did last speak to him, so let's get into our weekly update. Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you, and welcome back to you. Thank you very much. Lots of celebrate Simchot. Amen. We had the opportunity to celebrate a big Simcha. It was wonderful having you and members of your family with us. Uh, all right, you know where we're going to start. We need your takeaways from the Israeli election. Many people shocked and surprised that the right, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, have been able to or will be able officially to form a government. What are, in fact, your top takeaways from the most recent Israeli election? Well, there certainly is definitive sentiment amongst the Israeli people, and what's remarkable is to see the shift amongst younger voters to the right, where here we have a shift, decided shift amongst young voters to the left. And, the, um, and of course, in both countries it's mixed, but we're talking about the general direction. And the fact that Netanyahu uh, was able to uh, secure the 61 seats, or 64, but he has not been able to secure a government yet, and he's in very intense negotiations. There's even talk of forming a minority government of 57 seats, uh, without Smutrich and the Religious Zionist Party because he's demanding the Ministry of Defense, which is uh, not something Netanyahu, I think, at this stage can give him because the, the relationship with the United States is critical for the Ministry of Defense, and they will not deal with him. At least that's what they've said. So he has a, he has set a deadline for Wednesday for forming the government, and it's going to be very interesting to see whether that pressure move really uh, changes things. Uh, Smutris was mi- offered the Ministry of Justice, which is very critical for things they care about. They also made some concessions about uh, the outposts, and yet that still hasn't uh, moved the needle on it. And the Ministry of Finance, which he wanted as an alternative, Derry insisted on getting. And the um, you know the jockeying will continue to go on. Uh, I'm sure we'll read much more by. Monday about Sunday's negotiations. There's not enough positions. There are not enough uh, titles to be distributed. Uh, that's well, how many key titles. That's what they care about. I'm surprised people don't want the foreign ministry more. Uh, it's um, rumored that um, Ron Dermer, the former ambassador to the U.S., would be a prime candidate for that. Uh, also, Ohana, who would likely be the speaker if he's not the foreign minister. And he has many others within Likud that he has to take care of. Uh, there are, it's going to be a very big government, a broad government, maybe 30 ministers, but it's, it's, um, it's the prime positions that really count, and especially for the leadership. I think the membership are ready to accept whatever ministries they are, they are offered. So if Smotrich's request or demand for a defense minister is unreasonable, obviously if he would request foreign minister, I would assume for the same reasons it would be unreasonable, right? It would be more reasonable, but not likely, and uh, would also be complicated because many foreign governments have also imposed this restriction, which I think is, you know, governments should be able to choose their members if somebody doesn't want to deal with them, it's their business. But, uh, you know, we have people sitting in governments all over the world that they meet with who are, um, who are known to have radical positions or whatever. And, uh, 
you know, the relationship, though, with the Defense Department, we just saw the head of CENTCOM, the Central Command, was uh, visiting with uh, the Chief of Staff, Aviv Kochavi, uh, in Israel this past week, and they talked about expanding the joint capabilities against Iran, and there are uh, virtually every day uh, visits or exchanges of some kind. Uh, Karila, General Karila, who's the head of CENTCOM, I mean, talked about the relationship, uh, the joint capability, military capabilities that they're developing and, and expediting it. This it's only symbolic <coughs> of the all of the exchanges that take place, and this relationship is too vital, especially given uh, the battle with Iran, to limit it or endanger it in, in any way. You saw this week a B-52 bomber from the United States, accompanied by Israeli jets, again went across the Middle East and joined by other by jets from other countries as they transversed uh, the Gulf. It's, uh, it's, it's a daily occurrence. And so the Ministry of Defense is very critical. Uh, and so so should be some of the other positions, like the, the head of the National Security Council, uh, which is not a minister. This is usually a, an expert, a security expert. And the um, uh, Ministry of Finance, which is very vital. Uh, right now, especially given the economic challenges. So if we would have spoken right after the election, uh, this conversation would have been very different. It would have looked like an absolute slam dunk for Netanyahu, and formation of a government would be a foregone conclusion. Two weeks later, what's holding everything up is these negotiations within the potential government. And uh, I don't know, two weeks ago, would that have surprised you, knowing that uh, there would have been this delay because uh, uh, because of the demands that certain members have had? We did anticipate it because, uh, you know, they had, they had declared their intentions beforehand uh, that if the government, if they won and they were in the government, that this is what they would insist on. Uh, but uh, it's very unfortunate. I think that the most important thing is to form a government and get busy, do the work of the people. And then things uh, can always work out. But and know, everybody is jockeying for position. And especially when you have those types of numbers, you know, the, the strength that you ended the election mm-hmm. with starts to wane when all this, you know, back and forth continues to go on. Um, so how did he do it? I mean, what's the analysis? How did Netanyahu do it? Why, for all these previous times, was there basically a deadlock in the Israeli election? Now, suddenly, you know, the right <clears throat> has, you know, started to dominate a little bit. And now, <clears throat> I know you, you mentioned the shift and the youth, and I get that, but did Netanyahu see this coming? Like, did he, did he just simply wait it out until he, uh, you know, until he realized his vision that this is where the country was going and he was automatically likely going to end up in the top position? Well, I think there are a number of factors. Um, I think the terrorism wave was a major factor and drove people to vote security, uh, as we saw in some places here in the United States, too. But there, the the heavy toll being taken by the consistent day-by-day different attacks, as we saw again this past week, a very tragic attack at Ariel and others, uh, people were voting for security. And the government, the previous government, I think ran a, a so, somewhat like Vegas ago campaign. Also, the fact that the merits votes were eliminated and that they did not join together with labor, which would have saved that and done what Smotrich and Ben Beard did by joining. Right. Uh, remember, those votes then were divided and right. Likud gets the majority of it because it's distributed proportionately to the right. vote you got. So any parties 
that uh, didn't make the threshold, their votes get distributed to the existing parties, but not those most ideologically akin to them, but by the proportion uh, of the total vote. So right. Likud is the biggest party, got the biggest chunk of those. And, I mean, it wasn't an overwhelming mandate, but right. it was certainly a rejection of the former government and uh, anticipation that this government would do much more in security and the economics uh, was a vital issue. So this is not a trend, it's a circumstance. Those who are saying the left's never going to win in Israel again, it's a silly statement. Because this is just, as you just said, they voted because of circumstance of today. It's not a, a trend that's moving the entire country a certain way. It's never going to be reversed. I think the formal left structure is definitely um, shifted and changed dramatically. Uh, you saw it in, in with um, the prime minister, with Lapid and others. I mean, they certainly moved to the center and the uh, and finally Benny Gantz's party. So I do think that there's some credibility to the fact that the, the, the left has, as the traditional left in Israel or more extreme left, are certainly not in favor. <clears throat> I don't see them coming back uh, soon, but I do think um, a move to the center could be um, more likely. All right. Now, when people want to know, uh, I mean, you've alluded to it in terms of the defense and the importance of certain things going forward, the economy, etc. On the world scene, because Netanyahu likely is going to be back in power, are we going to see an increase of relationships like the Abraham Accords? Are we going to see negotiations with countries that we probably wouldn't have seen with the former government? What major changes do you anticipate with him? I don't think immediately there will be any major change. I think he will work as he has to reinforce the relationships with the Arab countries that signed the, the Abraham Accords. He spoke to uh, President Erdogan of Turkey uh, yesterday. He has talked to some of the Arab leaders who have called to congratulate him, including King of Jordan, despite his heavy criticisms. And uh, so I think he will put more emphasis on outreach I don't anticipate that there's any basis for any negotiations with the Palestinians. Uh, the previous government didn't either, and the, it's not likely. I do think there'll be a greater emphasis on security, and obviously the issues that the parties have raised about the legality of the outposts and moving against the Supreme Court, all of which will, will not play well on the international scene, but um, perhaps will satisfy some of the domestic demands. All right, understood. Um, well, people want to know what you think of other elections as well. Um, what is your what are your takeaways from the midterm elections in the United States? And just like we lamented when in Israel things were basically 50-50, right, always going back to new elections, never having a definitive leader, etc., uh, is there a concern that the House is so evenly divided post-midterm elections? Yes, because you always have people who shift. You saw how Manchin shifted in the in the Senate uh, to vote with the Republicans uh, at times uh, and other senators have and I think the same thing is likely in the House where you have people both much more radically on the right as well as those who are more centrist uh, who could put pressure on the on the agenda but I think there seems to be consensus on some of the things like the investigation of Biden's like um, you know, addressing some of the issues that they felt were left over from from before and were not addressed. It's it 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 will be a battle. First, um, the speaker has to be elected, and then 
and, and as we saw that it, it was likely to be Kevin McCarthy, uh, and then the agenda has to be set. I like it when there are there's some checks and balances when one party controls all three: the White House, Senate, and uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, you know, sometimes you get a juggernaut, but uh, I think it's uh, it also can be crippling when they just are an opposition party, meaning opposing everything that comes up, rather than coming up with their own positive agenda to get through. So, the, you know, the House has the power of the purse. It has other abilities. Uh, but I think standing up for, for uh, a lot of the, on a lot of the issues where they, people have felt weakness, everything from China to um, domestic security, the border issues, the... Certainly the economic issues are, are very vital and uh, standing up against Iran. We saw them launch this new hypersonic, or it's claimed they have a hypersonic missile that can hit Israel in 400 seconds. It's, people shouldn't get too crazy yet. They don't have it. <laughs> and they're only claiming that they have the technology for it, which hasn't been proven uh, either. But the move against the Israel in the UN in the last week on the ICJ, we did not see the administration really taking this on uh, in a very tough way. We have to see some changes. I mean, on a lot of a lot of issues, both domestic and international, that Iran and China using detectives here to go after dissidents, and you know, I, I'm not saying that nobody cares, but the and the most blatant, of course, was the FBI investigation. Uh, demanding an investigation uh, of the murder of the journalist in Israel. 700 American journalists have been killed. We haven't seen any investigations anywhere else like this. And the one country that really does hold itself to account and to have the State Department, the White House, and everybody else said they knew nothing about it, uh, doesn't give us a source of comfort. And I uh, hope that they'll quickly reverse it and that it's some rogue element within the FBI that's responsible uh, rather than the attorney general ha approving it and everybody else having approved it because this would be a, it's a very disturbing movement sends a very bad message in the region you'll start to worry if it's not reversed by when is this days away or this week this week 100%. um will remember a pelosi and hoyer as uh, easy to work with vis-a-vis -vis israel issues under the leadership or not uh, hoyer is a great friend and nancy pelosi was generally supportive so people will yeah, look at the term generally on, on Israel issues. Look at the votes that that uh, came up and fighting elements within there, uh, really um, cancerous elements like the squad and, and others. Uh, I think they they pay too much deference to them. Uh, I don't think Hoyer so much. I think Nancy Pelosi did peering with them at the beginning and then taking a stronger stance only much later. But the um, you know you saw from the election that they're, they're uh, Elon Omar won by a very narrow margin, and there was very little money put in against her. Perhaps had there been more support for her opponent, it might have won. Right. But the, but it was the Somalis in her district who voted against her. It's not right. Jews. Right. <laughs> Always have to remember that. Um, and two pieces of analysis that people are asking me. Uh, number one, uh, your post-election view of why this red wave did not, in fact, come to fruition. I'm not sure that it ever existed. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I did say something on the show that people did not get uh, too carried away yet, that I, I think people were building up this image. It, it depended a lot on the vote in urban areas of minorities and others to see what the Hispanic, black, and other turnout would be. 
I certainly think that the, the Jewish turnout was, the certainly religious communities was much greater, and they voted more Republican. Uh, but they know the reality in New York, for instance, is that a Republican to win is very difficult. I think Zeldin ran a very good campaign, came as close as he possibly could uh, without getting a, getting the mandate. Uh, but look in, in, the, in Nassau County, uh, they really made the difference in, in gaining control over the House. So when people say the votes don't count, and in New York, you know, Republicans, the votes don't count, it isn't true. We see that those four seats that switched really could have been the margin of uh, of uh, in the House. Right. So every vote counts, regardless of what side you vote on, and every and your that is your voice. And supporting candidates this time, they did many of them did come to to visit the communities. Some did not, and uh, and I hope that people will at least learn the lesson. And now we start a voter registration drive, not a week before, and then they say it's too late. Right that everybody, doesn't matter what party, just register. And here, obviously, to vote in the primaries, you have to be a Democrat. Uh, but you can register Republican also. And you know the other uh, piece that people in this audience want you to comment about, and that's your impression of the Trump announcement this week. Uh, I think it's very early. I think it evoked a lot of negative response, much more than perhaps one would have anticipated so early on where major backers um, announced that they wouldn't participate, even Ivanka. And um, I think, you know, he, he did it in measured tones. And if he could sustain a campaign like that, he would do much better. <laughs> but, but it's very early stage. And two years of a campaign is very long for people to take. And he has a lot of opposition. And it's whether it's DeSantos or Pence or others, I, you know, I've heard and over the last couple of days, it's, it's not going to be a walk away. Yeah, one would expect that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at com on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. All right, I mean, we've spoken about this topic endless times, but uh, I feel as though uh, option but to address it and address it strongly uh, today. Uh, we, we did have an opportunity after the Kanye episode to, uh, to delve into um, his anti-Semitic rant, and uh, I don't think we had an opportunity since the uh, uh, Kyrie Irving um, a tweet, uh, nor did we have an opportunity, obviously, since last Saturday night with Dave Chappelle to address the, uh, the rampant desire among certain people to spread um, uh, to spread information about Jewish people, which they think does not lead uh, to danger or insecurity for Jews. And, of course, we think just the opposite. What is your impression of anti-Semitism in America in light of these uh, recent events? So uh, a subject we have discussed endlessly uh, uh, and mourning about what is really happening, and it's because we... we Look at this uh, to to uh, directly, both by direct experience and and the hearing from people, but also because we have Scan that monitors the anti secure community network that that monitors the anti-Semitic attacks across the country. This pattern has been growing, and uh, equally disturbing to me, let's say on the on the comments of uh, David Chappelle, 
and supposedly humorous. How many Jews said to me, well, it's satire, you know, it's satire. And some of it was very funny. There's even one Orthodox rabbi who had indicated that he wanted to invite him to the to synagogue to to speak and because he thought it was, uh, you know, a very clever thing. It was not clever. And if you go on the Internet and you see the reactions of support and the uh, comments that are being made, people don't get it. The young people don't know. If it was satire, they don't understand the reference. Frankly, I didn't see it as satire either. I thought it was horrendous. It could, would never have happened before, and it would certainly not be acceptable if it was about another uh, ethnic or religious group. Uh, to um, and, and what's very disturbing is that when one goes on the Internet and sees the reaction to it, when Kylie Irving, you know, wanted to give the, the, when Adidas and somebody, I don't know if ADL was part of the announcement, but they announced that it would get a million dollars, half a million from each of them. There were millions of vile comments on the internet saying, you see, Jews take the money, Jews, Jews are only interested in the money. The fact of what he said and, and, and did and whether, you know, how much he really knew or not know, I mean, there are times when sometimes these comments are just, comments speak that they say without understanding the implications. And I have talked to some of the, the people who were engaged in, 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 in earlier controversies who were not anti-Semitic in any way. They were ignorant. And then the rise to defend them uh, is equally disturbing, as was welcome the, the instances of people who, including sports stars, who stood up to condemn them. I think that this is a, a very disturbing trend and the fact that, uh, to me, it's the Farrakhan speak has so permeated the black community, uh, whether it's the black Hebrews, which I did not think, but uh, maybe they've had some impact uh, tangentially, but I think it's much more the radical speak, the, the uh, intersectionality, the uh, Black Lives Matter, the anti-Semitism we saw in some of these movements uh, are, are being manifest now. And it's, it is certainly something that has to be very disturbing to people and the failure of black leaders and others to speak up, it's not we who have to uh, fight it. It's they. We are the victims, not the perpetrators. And I think that, that we see how pervasive Case Western University um, announced that, that, that their student body uh, voted for a BDS resolution. We saw that Harvard was determined to have been the, the campus with the most anti-Semitic attacks according to last year, according to one of the reports that, that uh, came out and studying the 21-22 academic year. And, you know, you, you go around from University of Chicago with 13 incidents or Tufts with 12, and, and, and that's ones that are reported and that they got the information on. But the students themselves talk about the relentless atmosphere on the campuses, and we are seeing it in in so many different places in so many different ways and one shouldn't dismiss what happens at the UN all of this stuff adds up and then if a Jewish name is associated with some sort of a, a scandal or, or collapse of a business it adds to it and I'm telling you if people could see what goes on on the web the real impact of it the fact that the UN voted 98 to 17 to take Israel to the International Criminal Court um, declaring occupation will need to end. I mean, a Palestinian maneuver to avoid negotiations, and yet overwhelmingly the countries of the world, uh, the truth is 69 did not vote for it, but only 17 of them voted against it. Uh, th this is all a cumulative impact, 
and it's something the community has to take seriously. We have to deal with the domestic security, but we have to press elected officials. And now the election is over. It's time to really get behind it. Everybody took credit, the elected officials, for the amount of money that we get for security. And uh, that, they, and rightly, it is very generous. But the problem is much deeper. And I think we need innovative and new approaches and, and to be more... Uh, to confront it more directly. You know, it's funny because I, I never even thought in context of Farrakhan and what was going on 30, 40 years ago with public statements by black leaders. But, you know, you, we, we could conjecture if Farrakhan had the Internet, you know, how, how much worse that whole era would have been. Well, now the Farrakhan types have the Internet, and, the, and they're able to do uh, and, and expand on the seeds that he sowed uh, in New York and other places, you know, decades ago. Uh, which, which, by the way, justifies because people. I, I remember, you know, in those days, late eighties, early nineties, you know, were wondering about how sensitive Jewish leaders were to his statements and whether they refused to meet with him, et cetera, et cetera. Now you see the justification because it was seeds that he sowed that you know got us to this point. Frankly, and former President of the United States stand with him on a stage, and uh, you know he may not be spewing it so much now. I think he's eighty-nine years old, but his impact. It's, it's very clear, and you're right, the Internet and social media generally uh, expands it. But look what's happening on the campuses, and it's not only amongst blacks, and it's not only amongst any one group. It's, it's uh, very widespread, and this is uh, of great concern. And the more that they manifest it in physical assaults, the more dangerous it becomes. All right, I just got to move on because it would be wrong if we didn't discuss the Iranian protesters. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done a weekly update. Uh, is there, in fact, any update? Because when we last spoke, they were making some progress to the point where you felt the numbers and the actions were really having a big effect. Anything new over the last couple of weeks? Yesterday, in 134 cities, over 3 million people participated. I believe it's having an impact. I believe it's... Um, uh, it's growing. The West does not give it the attention and certainly not the support that it deserves. But the young people, and especially the women, have continued this, and even though there are arrests and the first execution, not the first death, there are maybe three, 400 people killed or more, but the first formal execution of the participants this past week where they announce it and claim that the person, also this woman, also set fire to a government building. But, of course... It's a sham, and they're going to, they have another case um, of an execution that's rumored to be uh, forthcoming. Um, but it hasn't diminished the fervor, and for everybody they arrest, then 10 members of their families join the demonstrations, and more unions, storekeepers, campus, the, uh, uh, refinery workers, every category you can imagine uh, are joining and, and being uh, expressing themselves. And you see the isolation of Iran. If we would impose more the oil sanctions and stop them from selling oil, both theirs and, and Russians, it would help. Putin spoke to Raisi again, and you see that the, the China-Russia-Iran cooperation is growing because they're all, all three are desperate to, to build these connections. And the, uh, the, it is likely that the case is supposed to come up with Human Rights Council, although they're fighting it. Uh, the... the um, and the Iranians are, are making threats about it. Also, the IEA is supposed to, um, they, well, they did. They, they have um, came out with a very strong condemnation of Iran for not cooperating. But nobody should think that JCPOA is dead. It's certainly uh, paralyzed right now. I, and because of the demonstrations and because of their 
support for Russia and selling weapons for use in Ukraine, et cetera, that the, um, and more aggressive stance, you know, that there was a, a rocket fired in an Israeli-owned tanker in the Gulf of Oman, which originated in, uh, in Iran. If it's not public, that it will be, that, that was the origin. Oh. And the, uh, you know, it could be a strike back because of Israel strikes against the shipments going into Syria, which were more, much stronger in the last week. And they also hit some of the manufacturing places. Iran took over the manufacture of the missiles and took over facilities that own, uh, belong to Syria because they can't they had more and more difficulty shipping stuff. So now they just see parts and material and uh, Israel is, uh, is taking care of some of those facilities as well, but you can't take care of everything. Uh, so Iran does not diminish its activities despite the demonstrations which have taken place in hundreds of cities and more than 10 million people participated. But if you look at the language now, they're going after the minorities, the Baluchis, the Kurds and others, and they're using armed uh, forces. So the, the likelihood is that we'll see more of an attempt to, to oppress them when they represent perhaps the majority, but certainly about 50% of the country. And the, the, but the demonstrations are not limited to those areas. The people of Iran are demonstrating and they're being more and more vocal and courageous as anything. I mean, they do things on the streets against the Ayatollahs that are just incredible. It's remarkable the effort that's going on, and and you, you sort of feel bad because uh, you know when when you're taking on tyrants like they're trying to uh, topple, it's just such a it's such a difficult. Uh, uh, and they're know. not getting the support. All they want from the West, they need money, they need supplies. They're not asking for weapons, they're not asking for missiles, and and they're not getting it. Even the verbal support, the administration did come out better than we did the last two times, at least in verbal some verbal support, but. We need to do much more, and Europeans need to do much more. Um, you know, we know that Georgia prevented an Iranian uh, attempt to murder uh, an Israeli. Uh, we, we know that they're doing stuff all over uh, the world where they're, they are trying to carry out attacks, and thank God they prevented, even in, in this country, about against Iranian dissidents. And, um, you know, they, they continue to move to try to ship the surface-to-surface missiles to get them into Iran. To, to, there was a huge shipment of fertilizer that was stopped on the way to Yemen, and I'm sure everybody last one to hear, but that fertilizer can be used as fuel for uh, bombs and, and um, attacks. So it was a huge shipment that was intercepted by uh, the U.S. on the seas, and it was a stateless uh, ship, uh, so nobody claims ownership of it, but it was clearly going to the Houthis in Yemen. And finally, people are wondering uh, uh, if you're concerned that the uh, Russia-Ukraine war is, act- in fact, going to lead to NATO involvement. I think NATO is going to be very reluctant to get involved. I think that, he, you know, nobody has in Europe has a stomach for to do anything. They don't even deal with their own domestic threats, let alone Ukraine. Uh, I think that there could be sanctions. I think there could be uh, other measures taken, but I don't see military intervention as likely. And the Ukrainians have done pretty well, you know, taking getting Kherson back is a is a very big blow to the Russians unless they have some other strategy up their sleeves. 
I think it's more that winter's coming and they couldn't hold on to the longer um, uh, border and, and the extension of, of the supply routes, which were being cut off by the Ukrainian forces. So uh, I do not anticipate this being um, broadened widely. I mean, it, it looks like, unless you're just saying that, you know, it'll be this upcoming season that it'll appear this way, it looks like they're heading to some type of stalemate. I don't want to say ceasefire yet, because I don't know if that's realistic. Uh, but do you see things slowing down in this conflict? Well, there were a lot of attacks yesterday in different cities, and they fire uh, against the infrastructure. The, uh, the Russians fire missiles, uh, some of them which supplied by Iran, and certainly those drones, the kamikaze drones, that the um, uh, they're trying to, to destroy the infrastructure so that heat, electricity, and other things as the winter sets in put pressure on them. But it's also going to put pressure on the Russian troops. Uh, so I think that we're at a very difficult, um, it's a difficult stage in, in the sustaining this effort. But remember how many billions and billions of dollars we, we've poured into yep. Ukraine. It's not as if the West is, is uh, leaving them to their own devices. Obviously, the country's economy is at a, a standstill, and uh, the war in Ukraine maybe, I hope, woke people up to the reality of the military threats. They still don't understand what Israel's up against and how much Israel has done on its own to counter these threats, But uh, and, and one would have hoped there would be more understanding of Israel's strategic environment and, and defensive needs. Uh, but you see Iran supply the drones, you see them violating all the UN resolutions, we see all of that. And the lackluster and, and weak response, sanctions matter, there have been more sanctions put on, they're not negotiating the JCPOA, but they're not willing to say it's dead, they're not willing to say the chapter's closed, yeah. because they want it to come back, and many people in the administration, even though they know it's not realistic uh, right now. Malcolm, do people ask you if it's time to leave the United States? All the time. And I, I can't tell people what to do, also legal implications, but uh, all I can say is that uh, I'm hopeful, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when all of us will be able to be gathered together in Israel, that the it's unrealistic to expect that the six million Jews are going to leave, so we have to talk about the situation here. But if you look at the real estate market in Israel and the number of Americans who are buying, let alone French and others, who are facing the reality, it's an indication of the sense of insecurity about the future, about our grandchildren or our children even. If you look at campuses, there is not a single campus where we don't have these anti-Semitic incidents. And you know we have study after study that's coming out over the last uh, I mean, it's every week. It's hardly a, a week or even a day when I don't get a, an update from one side or the other about what's happening on campus, off campus, and in, in social media, in media generally, the, the portrayals of Jews, the, the depictions. is very, It's very frightening, and we have to be much more assertive in the response to it. Malcolm, I thank you. Next week's Thanksgiving weekend. We'll let everyone know if we, in fact, will have a weekly update or not. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks so much for joining us. You mean the turkey takes precedence over this turkey? It might oh. in this case. <laughs> <laughs> have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time, with the weekly update right here at JM in the AM.